0: Today, provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on today.
1: North and South Korea hold groundbreaking ceremony for inter-Korean railway and road project. Taiwan's ruling DPP party dealt another blow with local elections. Attack on Libya's foreign ministry killed at least three people. And Japan announced withdrawal from the International Whaling Commission to resume commercial whaling. You're listening to Today, a news program with a different perspective. I am Sui. Coming up, we have an hour of world news and analysis. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching for World News Analysis. North and South Korea are celebrating what both countries hope will be the first step toward resuming road and rail links across the border. A delegation of 100 officials from the South, including the country's transport and unification ministers, made a two-hour train journey to attend Wednesday's groundbreaking ceremony at Panmun Station in the North Korean border town of Kaizong. The move follows April's Pyongyang Summit, in which South Korean President Moon Jae-in and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un agreed to modernize and eventually connect railways and roads along the eastern and western Korean peninsula. Now being with us to talk about the latest development surrounding the Korean peninsula issue is Dr. Zhao Tong Fellow in Carnegie's nuclear policy program based at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. So Dr. Zhao, South Korea says the event is a mere expression of a commitment and doesn't mean the start of actual work. But still, since we know all railways and roads between the two Koreas have been severed since the Korean War ended with armistice, How significant is today's move?
2: Well, there were some previous efforts to connect the railway uh, between the two Koreas before during the administration of Kim dae joon The railway uh, between the two Koreas were briefly connected. Uh, But this time, the scale and scope of the inter-Korean cooperation was much wider and deeper than before. And I think the significance is very uh, important um, because it represents another uh, opportunity for the two Koreas to reconnect uh, their two economies. And uh, they are promising a much uh, greater economic future for the entire uh, Korean Peninsula. They wanted to push for more economic and trading cooperation after the roads and railways are connected. Um, so the uh, potential for future economic cooperation uh, has been demonstrated. This is a much uh, brighter picture painted by two Koreas that was never seen before.
1: The two leaders, Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un, agreed at their summit in April to eventually connect railways and roads along the eastern and western peninsula. But is there enough political will out there? What's still needed before they can do the actual work?
2: Um, I think there are some uh, practical obstacles for the two Koreas to uh, push for uh, significant progress to reconnect their railway and roads. Uh, One of them being the existing uh, international economic sanctions on North Korea, particularly uh, economic sanctions imposed by the United Nations Security Council. Um, For any uh, material and uh, fuel and other uh, goods to be transported from the south to the north, those materials and goods need uh, to receive sanction exemptions uh, from UN security, uh, from relevant UN security, uh, UN, uh, uh, institutes, uh, institutions. Um, so, so far there is no, uh, change of UN Security Council resolutions on North Korea, which means South Korea has to constantly request such sanction exemptions for any future uh, interaction with the North. Uh, As long as these sanction resolutions are not removed or changed, they will uh, present uh, important challenges for such cooperation to take place. So that's the biggest obstacle. Of course, that relates to the political will, especially from the North side. If North Korea is willing to make important progress on its uh, denuclearization uh, promise, then there will be uh, incentives uh, for members of the UN Security Council to change the resolution. Uh, That's, so far, uh The biggest uh, challenge in the future, North Korea has not uh, demonstrated enough interest in making fundamental progress towards uh, nuclear disarmament.
1: Mm -hmm. We know South Korean President Moon Jae-in has been promoting this uh, development first and unification later strategy. Moon Jae-in has uh, several times said uh, development or economic benefits uh, should be prioritized. And then they can talk about unification later on. How is this proposal being received by North Korea and other major stakeholders?
2: Um, I think North Korea really likes this proposal. Uh, My personal understanding is uh, North Korea does not want to unilaterally give up its nuclear weapons anytime soon. It wants to uh, keep its nuclear weapons, but at the same time tries to develop its economy. So the South Korean proposal really uh, suits North Korea very well because it allows North Korea retain its nuclear capability and at the same time uh, to uh, develop its economy. Um, So the South Korean effort uh, will help North Korea undermine the international economic sanction regime uh, and therefore provide North Korea uh, the chances uh, to increase trade and economic cooperation with the outside world without really giving up its nuclear weapons. Other countries, they have really different uh, attitudes toward this proposal. Uh, there are intense debate within the United States about how much um, economic sanctions uh, can be lifted before North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons. So far, the U.S. has been very insistent. It requires... Uh, fundamental uh, and profound uh, concession from North Korea on the nuclear issue before substantive uh, discussion on the removal of economic sanctions. Uh, Japan is also very tough on this position, insisting that uh, sanction removal requires important democratization progress. But other countries have different views, including Russia and China. They believe uh, this should be an incremental process. If North Korea can make incremental progress towards uh, the eventual goal of denuclearization, if North Korea is willing to limit its nuclear and missile programs uh, in some areas, then the UN Security Council should consider removing some of its existing sanctions. Um, so the views are really, uh, 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 diversi- uh, diversified according to uh, different uh, interests and different uh, perspectives uh, from different capitals.
1: And more about denuclearization issue, which is one of the most critical issues like you mentioned, before all sides can move forward. So can we say a little progress or basically no progress has been made in the past few months?
2: Well, North Korea has made some meaningful concessions uh, towards limiting uh, its nuclear and missile programs. Uh, It has uh, dismantled its nuclear test site, which is uh, important uh, because it can no longer uh, conduct underground nuclear tests in the near-term future to further improve uh, its Uh, nuclear warhead design uh, capability Uh, it has also promised to uh, dismantle an important uh, missile engine test uh, stand and that has been partially fulfilled according to the analysis of uh, satellite image of that uh, missile engine testing ground North Korea has promised to uh, shut down its very important uh, Yangbyan nuclear uh, complex. That has now been uh, carried out because North Korea wants the United States to take so-called corresponding measures uh, in this regard. Uh, So there there are some uh, meaningful unilateral concessions from North Korea but uh, we are far from uh, complete and uh, thorough uh, elimination of North Korea's nuclear missile capability. So far, all the efforts taken by North Korea do not undermine North Korea's capacity to uh, keep uh, uh, its existing uh, nuclear warheads and uh, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles.
1: And then talking about the U.S. element, U.S. President Donald Trump has said he's looking forward to his second summit with Kim Jong-un, which Washington says may take place early next year. We know the two sides have been exchanging some harsh words again during the past few weeks. So how optimistic are you? Are they capable of keeping the momentum this year to push talks forward next year in 2019?
2: I think it's increasingly hard. The bilateral negotiation between Pyongyang and Washington are not generating uh, the kinds of results that are expected uh, by the United States. Uh, again, uh, North Korea is uh, bulking uh, its uh, efforts to complete, give up its nuclear weapons, and it's only waiting. Uh, to offer uh, small and limited concessions. Uh, um, and that doesn't satisfy uh, Washington. And therefore, um, many senior officials in the White House are being uh, disillusioned about the prospect of uh, quick North Korean denuclearization. Um Many uh, officials, including uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and uh, National Security Advisor Bolton, uh, they really want to uh, push for a tougher uh, policy towards North Korea. Um, so far, President Trump is increasingly uh, lonely in his uh, attitude towards North Korea. He still insists that... Uh, things are going well. Uh, he's continuing painting a picture of a smooth uh, bilateral negotiation between Washington and Pyongyang. Um, it looks like the president himself does not care about how much real progress is being made. He only wants receiving political credit uh, for making a historical progress in U.S.-North Korea relationship. So there is uh, a widening gap between the U.S. president and his own associates on the North Korea policy. It's really hard to tell how this gap will be addressed in 2019. Uh, so uh, there is only one thing that is certain, uh, which is the U.S.-North Korea bilateral negotiation in this upcoming year will be uh, very bumpy. uh, Anything but Mm
1: smooth. Thank you very much, Dr. Zhao, as always. We've been talking with Dr. Zhao Tong, fellow in Carnegie's nuclear policy program based at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. Coming up, Taiwan's ruling DPP party dealt another blow with local elections. You're listening to today. Stay
2: with us. Chinaplus.cri.cn is your home for everything you want to know about China.
3: The latest news in China and everything China-related from around the world.
0: Everything in focus, all in one place, bringing you vital information for your business and travel.
3: Chinese culture, language learning and more.
0: Chinaplus.cri.cn
3: Chinaplus.cri.cn, your portal into today's Middle Kingdom.
1: Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Taiwan's ruling DPP parties dealt another blow with local elections. Only one DPP candidate has been elected as speaker for local legislative body, while the Kuomintang party managed to win 19 positions. The remaining two elected speakers are independents. This comes a month after key local elections in Taiwan, which saw the Democratic Progressive Party lose two of the island's most important mayoral posts. Taiwan leader Cai wen has since resigned as DPP party chair. Now being with us to talk about this is Liu Kuangyu, a researcher at the Institute of Taiwan Studies with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So Kuangyu, what can we tell from the results of these elections over speakers for city and county legislative bodies?
3: But well, I believe it's another huge blow. Uh, it's another huge blow for the DPP party after the local election last month. First this the uh, latest demonstration of the will of the people. We know that the speaker of the legislative bodies are public opinion representatives, especially on a more grassroots level. During the past month, I see that the DPP showed no real attention of introspection. The Tai Ying Wen administration still rejects 92 consensus and, and opposes uh, cross street exchanges. And that's why I think the people in Kaohsiung who has long for cross-street exchanges and prosperity chose Han Go-yu to be their leader. And now his overflow effect is even stronger to have the KMT to fully control the city legislative body. And second, I think that um, under these new politics, uh, political and social trends, the DPP inside has fallen into division. Take Tainan, for example. Some of the DPP members even withdrew from the party, to win uh, the speaker election because this, there is a severe struggle, uh, struggle between the factions uh, and now it's floating on the table.
1: So now local officials have been sworn in. In general, how would you evaluate the political scenario on the island after the local elections in the past few weeks?
3: Uh, well, I believe the, the after-effects of the election is still going going on and constantly spanning because there is a, uh, but there's Something changing and something inv- invariant during the past month. Uh, we can see there is a fierce struggle between both inside the KMT and DPP between factions for power and for direction. And the Taiwan politics now is coming to a stage of gain and regroup among new and old powers where there is a um, new republic and social trends are also adding uncertainties into the situation. Um, first, uh, traditional party politics structure and political ecology is under shock. The DPP has fallen to internal disorder as there is as they are losing their foundation of support and their focus on failure introspection has lost. Their inter international their in, internal power struggle uh, becomes more severe and the debate for political direction has been caught on. As the KMT side the fundamental shift is under a calm service, uh, the old politics stars. Like Wu Yi, Ma Ying-jeou, and, and Eric Chu are fighting for the right to represent the party for the 2020 race. But there is a constant call for the alternate, alternation uh, of generations and revolution of party culture to make the KMT more modern and more indigenous. Second, the so-called the third force is in a so uh, I think it's adjustment period. Especially the leader of the white force, the mayor of the the mayor of the Taipei City, Ke wen who has been very active during the past months by holding the twin city forum by trying to cooperate with uh, both the blue and the green camp people believe that this is the preparation for the 2020 race and should he join the race he, uh, join the race he will undoubtedly become the blockbuster
1: Mm-hmm. You also mentioned Kaohsiung's new mayor Han Kuo-yu. Han Kuo-yu promised to prioritize tourism of the southern port city. Han Kuo-yu also said Kaohsiung will look for more flight connections with the mainland, including air links with Shanghai Hongqiao International Airport. And we know Han accepts the 1992 consensus and is planning to set up a cross-strait working group to promote cross-strait trade ties. What else can we expect from Han and how much do you think Han Kuo-yu will set example for other local governments when it comes to developing cross-strait ties?
3: Well, I believe there are many ways for Han to make Kaohsiung a big fortune uh, as he promised to by uh, cooperating with the mainland. First, uh, there is the foundation of 92 consensus that he has to uh, has to stick to. And second, if Han wants to wants people in and wants cargo out, he needs an um, Unimpeded channel, and that's why Han warmly invites the Twin City Forum between Kaohsiung or Sh- with uh, Shenzhen or Amoy, uh, as well as the Cross Strait Entrepreneurship Summit to be held in Kaohsiung. Also, he supports the South-South to non-governmental cooperation across the Strait. Uh, for example, in the future, by connecting Shenzhen's high-tech, uh, by connecting with Shenzhen's high-tech industries, Kaohsiung might attract more investment. By connecting uh, Fujian and Amoy. We can expect the Southern Fujian culture and the economic circle to be stronger to boost the uh, throughput for the Kaohsiung-, Kaohsiung port. We can also expect, if the, uh, we can also expect that uh, if the spring of the cooperation starts from Kaohsiung, it will definitely sweep across the other uh, pan-blue cities and counties and probably force the Thai administration to change uh, its attitude towards cross rate exchange.
1: And at the same time, reports say 15 local government officials from blue cities and counties are considering visiting the mainland. What do we know about their plan and how important is such kind of uh, exchanges on the local level?
3: Well, there is a huge expectation uh, of the coming city uh, exchanges across the straits. I have a few suggestions for the 15 governors and mayors of the cities and counties. Uh, The first is that. They should clarify and stick to the 92 consensus as the foundation for any future exchange. If someone tries to separate so-called politics and economic issues, that would uh, not be helpful for the exchange. Definitely. And second, there should be more integrated measures as the KMT better uh, as the KMT. uh, They should unify the Pan Blue cities and counties to openly and coherently communicate with the mainland. And third, I think we should notice that the DPP still grabs the central power uh, of Taiwan. The KMT should avoid political and technical interference, or uh, to let the DPP harvest from the exchange. And the fourth, uh, we should focus on the market mechanism in the future because the potential uh, projects should be mainly uh, non-governmental and based on open bidding. Uh, We should evaluate. uh, We should. Uh, we should evaluate more uh, the the, uh, the integral social benefits rather than certain benefits. Uh, the exchange should benefit as more as possible, especially the producer, the consumer, and the youth.
1: Mm-hmm. And we heard former New Taipei Mayor Eric Chu, Chu Lun, has announced that he would run in the 2020 race, becoming the first big-name politician to throw his hat in the ring. And you also mentioned Ko Wenzhe. Uh, I know it's a little bit early, but what should we look at as we are heading towards the 2020 race?
3: Well, uh, I think uh, Mr. Eric Chu's decision is early, but not surprising, because and Eric Trudy, during the past two years has enjoyed highest public support from uh, Internet public opinion polls, from other uh, uh, solid opinion polls among the county leaders. Uh, that's far more than Wu Deng Yi or Tsai Ying Wen. Uh, also, he has very good relations with many newly elected local leaders like um, Hou uh, Yu Yi from New Taipei City and Lu Yan from Taichung City. Um, he is also one of the most powerful and uh, promising com- competitor for 2020 race in the KMT, but there are also many others who wants to challenge, like Wu Deng Yi, Ma Ying-ju, and Wang Jinping. They are all uh, have strengths and weakness. so I think it's uh, still early to predict the outcome. Chu um, starts early, but he will not necessarily last uh, in the end. Mm. I personally hope, uh, I just hope that the KMT would not make this process again, an early election again. Hmm. Um, however, I think, as you as you mentioned, Dr. Covenzhe is considered the most promising horse uh, for the race uh, for now uh, because the majority of the Taiwanese voters hate both Kuomintang and DPP. They are more willing to choose someone out of the green camp and the blue camp, especially the youth. Um, but the most intriguing thing, I think, is that uh, as the current... Being the current ruling party, the DPP and Taiwan Wen is considered the least possible to win again. Mm-hmm. And for now, I don't see any chance uh, because uh, they has. Uh, I don't see any chance that they has really learned from the last election and could thus avoid uh, f- further failure.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, one quick question before we go: How much do you think the Taiwan question will continue to be a major point when it comes to the bilateral ties between China and the United States?
3: Well, I don't think, I don't believe the Taiwan question or the Taiwan issue alone can alter the, the Sino-US, uh, uh or uh, be something like, um, uh, like, uh, personally, I think, I think the, the importance of the Taiwan issue, uh, it depends on the, uh, the, f- the future situation of the, the Grand Sino-US, uh, and, and Sino relations. Uh, let me put it straight that depends how uh donald trump uh, the trump administration administration wants to involve uh, into a uh, how they want to involve uh, into a, a struggle uh, uh, between china and mm-hmm. uh, if uh, if donald trump if the trump administra- if the trump administration uh don't have do have many other uh, many other methods. They they will uh, try to use the Taiwan card.
1: Thank you very much, Kuang Yu. As always, that was Liu Kuang Yu. You've been listening to today. Stay with us. The guest speaker with today, I
4: feel very much grateful for providing a chance for me to communicate to the world and China's progress and China's accomplishment and also China's rich cultural heritage and, of course, China's desire to integrate itself into the international community. I believe today opens a window as well as build a bridge between people in China and the world.
1: You are listening to Today, I'm Sui. Time for our daily global survey where we take a quick look at what's happening around the world. Join me in the studio is my colleague Patrick Flannery.
0: First up in Asia, a film about Thailand's cave rescue is in production, featuring 12 of the trapped boys and their determined coach. Staying in the country, Thailand's parliament has voted to allow marijuana for medicinal use. In Oceania, Australia will install drone-identifying
1: equipment at its airports starting next month. Staying in the country, 3,000 people have been evacuated after residents of a newly completed tower reported hearing cracking
0: noises. Moving on to Africa, Instagram is said to have become an increasingly important way for citizens to share news in 2018. And Arthur Masuaku, who plays football for the Democratic Republic of Congo, says the media has a key role in combating the sport's racism.
1: Turning to the Middle East, serious military leaders attribute explosions heard near Damascus to Israeli airstrikes on the weapons depot. A British Iranian academic held in Iran on security charges was allowed to return to his home in the UK.
0: In Europe, a 4.8 magnitude earthquake has hit Sicily, around Europe's most active volcano, injuring at least two people. After winning the lottery, a Swiss man was told he had not won the lottery due to technical issues. Looking to Latin America, an Argentine woman,
1: seized in the 1980s by traffickers, has reunited with her family with the help of Argentine and Bolivian police. The body of a seven-year-old Guatemalan girl, who died earlier this month while in the custody of U.S. Border Patrol, was returned to her home.
0: And finally, in North America, the seven-year-old girl whose phone call with President Donald Trump on Christmas Eve went viral says she still believes in Santa Claus. An NBA star, LeBron James, apologizes after sharing a song lyric referencing a quote Jewish money on social media, saying he intended the post as a compliment.
1: Thanks, Patrick. And That winds up today's global survey. At least three people were killed and ten others were injured after militants stormed Libya's foreign ministry in the capital city of Tripoli. Islamic State has claimed responsibility for the attack. Libyan officials claim a car bomb exploded near the ministry, prompting security forces to rush to the spot. Two suicide bombers then blew themselves up inside the ministry's building. Security forces managed to kill a third attacker outside the building. With more on this, we're now joined on the line by Greg Barton, professor of global Islamic politics at Deakin University in Australia. So Professor Barton, why do you think the ISIS is targeting Libya this time?
4: I think what we're seeing with Libya and with ISIS is the target of opportunity. We know that many of the foreign terrorist fighters who went to Syria and Iraq joined with ISIS came from Libya. Libya, of course, is a failing state. It's very fragile. And we know that terrorist organizations as as parasitic infestations uh, have most profound effect on societies that are failing states. So we see this in Syria and Iraq. We see it in Afghanistan, Pakistan, places like uh, Somalia and northern Nigeria. But most of all, uh, Libya is a failing state. So many young people leave Libya to go and fight in Syria and Iraq until many come back home. ISIS, of course, no longer holds territory in Syria and Iraq, so it sees Libya as one of those places where it can rebuild itself.
1: A number of Libya's vital institutions have been targeted by suicide bombers in recent years. What should be the lessons learned from such attacks?
4: I think the ultimate lesson learned, if you follow the logic of what I was just saying, is that we need to rebuild governance in Libya if it to have a chance of securing itself against groups like Islamic State. At the moment, it's very vulnerable uh, to what's happening in Islamic State. We saw this, incidentally, with the Manchester bombing where there were connections over many years between Islamic State in Libya and, and a uh, community in Manchester. Uh, so it's a, it's a threat that goes beyond Libya itself. But Libya, n- until it forms a stable government, won't be able to get the security in place it will begin to limit groups like uh, Islamic State. And of course, it's, it's not just a problem for Libya that it affects something extent like Egypt, but certainly Tunisia next door. Uh, but that's the correlation which is clear, the correlation between failing government and an opportunity for a parasitic infestation of such a group like Islamic State.
1: Libya's foreign minister has been calling for the lifting of a UN-backed arms embargo on Libya, which was imposed in 2011. Uh, can this be a solution to the problem?
4: I don't think there's any shortage of arms in Libya to deal with the threat of Islamic State. So I, I, don't, I don't see that we can simply say if, if the Libyan authorities had more arms, that would make the problem go away. But the real danger in a uh, poorly governed space like Libya is that putting more small arms into that space uh, leads through corruption and, um, uh, and, and and lack of control of those arms passing into insertion groups, including Islamic State. But it certainly is the case that um, those in Libya trying to to build governance and bring back normality need every international assistance and help that they can receive. But we need to be very cautious about putting more arms into a conflict zone.
1: You mentioned building a more mature uh, government governing system. So what do you think could be or should be the political future of the country?
4: Well, first of all, Libya needs to uh, form Compromise a consensus amongst the competing factions that would, would try and claim uh, control over Libya. One of the problems with Libya, almost uniquely in the modern world, is that it never was a modern state. It was always a collectum of, of clans and, and, and competing tribes. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi managed to hold that together. Uh, but unlike even, say, Afghanistan, there wasn't any sort of semblance of modern state before that. So there needs to be some way of transcending tribal and clan loyalties, getting the... They're contesting factions, and there are three at the moment um, making claims on and leading Libya to, to work together in some kind of consensus and compromise, recognizing that no one's going to prevail, but they have to work together to form a stable government. Uh, and that's really the only way forward. It's easier to say than it is to do, but there is no alternative.
1: So what can be done by other international community members to help uh, to push forward this reconciliation process in Libya?
4: There is a place for having peacekeeping forces on the ground, so putting uh, more small arms in the conflict zone is not a good idea, but but putting peacekeeping forces in, uh, working with those in the emerging um, Libyan government, those who uh, have potential and are shown through their track record some capacity to make a contribution, working with them to build capacity, uh, trying to help them. Uh, get stability, nothing is easy about this, and that's one of the reasons why uh, the story of Libya is so tragic. Uh, But but the way forward is nevertheless uh, fairly clear. That's what has to be done.
1: So one of the major arguments when U.S. President Donald Trump was talking about withdrawing from Syria is that ISIS has already been defeated. Uh, Is the ISIS really defeated? What do you think are some of the main challenges in counterterrorism today in the region?
4: Well, almost nobody agrees with what uh, President Trump was saying in terms of the the, the factual details. There was a U.N. report, of course, a couple of months ago. Uh, that said that uh, the number of, of ISIS fighters just in Syria and in Iraq was likely to be between 20,000 and 30,000 fighters. Perhaps half of that number, maybe 14, 15,000 just in Syria alone, fighting in an insurgent mode. But of course, beyond that, we had a recent report from uh, the Center for Strategic International Studies at Georgetown University Washington uh, just came out a couple of weeks ago that said the number of, Salafi jihadi terrorists around the world, it's probably three or four times greater than it was at the time of the 9-11 attacks in 2001. And many of those, of course, are not in Syria and Iraq, uh, but in places like Afghanistan, but also in Libya, in Egyptian Sinai, uh, along the whole coast of North Africa, uh, and, and through the sub-Saharan Africa. Basically everywhere where good governance breaks down there's an opportunity for, for groups like Islamic State, though so in some cases also Al-Qaeda to take root, So, uh, unfortunately, it would be nice to believe that ISIS was defeated, but but nothing we know suggests that anywhere near being the truth.
1: And another argument is that uh, extremist fighters are flowing into Afghanistan. What's your observation?
4: It does seem that most of the fighters in Afghanistan are locals, or at least long-term residents. Um, We have seen a split-off from some of the Taliban factions, with some joining with Islamic state. Uh, but they're mostly ex Taliban. But there are some reports of, of, of foreign fighters, some of them who have may come from Syria and Iraq uh, or, 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 or across Asia, in fact, uh, going into Afghanistan. So that's as we would expect it to be that uh, this insurgent operation, which is international, will look for opportunities and, and points of weakness. Uh, sometimes it'll be a flow of people within it into southern Philippines and Mindanao. The siege of Orang will last year, for example, spoke to that. Um, and there, the presence of a fairly small number of foreign fighters can make a big difference in terms of technical capacity and, and the way in which uh, a, a city like Morali is taking siege. So that is a concern in Afghanistan. It's a concern
2: everywhere.
1: One last question. Since President Trump has been talking about withdrawing from Syria and having the number of stationed troops in Afghanistan, and also Turkish President Erdogan is talking about launching a military campaign to wipe out Kurdish fighters in in the northern parts of Syria, how do we make sense of what's happening in the Middle East uh, right now?
4: Well, one thing we can read from the American situation: What it's worth is the Secretary of Defence, uh, Jim Mattis, has resigned, and that Brett McGurk, who is leading Central Command in, in charge of operations in Syria and Iraq, has resigned. And of course, that goes along with uh, a score of voices saying this is exactly what we're advising against, what we've been warning you about. So th- there's pretty near universal consensus, excluding the President, that this is the wrong direction for America to be going in. Uh, it would be good to believe, as as President Trump claims, that, that Turkey and uh, and Russia and Iran will solve the problem. But we have good reason to believe that Turkey and Russia and Iran are there for their own interests, and their priority is not defeating Islamic State or Al Qaeda remnants. In fact, with the latter, Al Qaeda uh, affiliates, uh, Turkey's working very strongly with militia linked with Al Qaeda in northern Syria, and appears to, sh- to to turn a blind eye towards Islamic State. You know, it fears that if it, feels that it can help them to seek what they regard as their main enemy, the Kurds. Uh, so this is an, an awful mess and likely to get worse. That's why we're seeing these spectacular resignations at the highest levels with the Secretary of Defense and Commander of CEMCOM. Uh I think that's pretty bad news for everyone, not just for those who are looking at, at, at American
1: interests. Thank you very much, Professor Barton, as always. We've been talking with Greg Barton, professor of global Islamic politics at Deakin University in Australia. Coming up, Japan announces withdrawal from the International Whaling Commission to resume commercial whaling. You're listening to Today. I'm Sui. Stay tuned.
2: What matters to China increasingly matters to the world. Keep up to date with the latest news and events about the Middle Kingdom with the China Plus app. Up to the Minute Reports, live streaming audio insightful opinion on everything china related facts figures and language learning resources at your fingertips everything in focus all in one place search for china plus in the app store or google play
3: ever worry that you'll miss out on breaking events tune in to today to get the latest news and analysis on the important stories in china and around the globe Today, illuminating the news that matters to you.
5: Hello, this is Michael Zhang. Greetings from Los Angeles of the Golden State of California. Thank you today for making me part of your team. I truly enjoy the debates we had and look forward to many more in the years to come.
1: You've been listening to today. Japan says in July it will restart commercial whaling after more than a 30-year ban. The country also announced it will withdraw from the International Whaling Commission, the body tasked with whale conservation. That commission banned commercial whaling in 1986 after some species were almost driven to extinction. Officials say that eating whales has always been a part of Japanese culture. For many years, Japan has haunted whales for scientific research and to sell the meat, a program widely criticized for conservationists. For more on this, we're now joined in the studio by our reporter, Ding Heng. So Ding Heng, could you tell us more about the current whaling ban by the IWC? Why is there such a ban and how does it work?
5: Mm, So the ban is on commercial whaling. Like I said, it was uh, introduced in the mid-1980s uh, when some species were in danger. So basically, IWC members, they agreed to a haunting, how to say, suspension, I, w- I would say, in order to allow the stocks, the reserves of some species to recover. So in the eyes of some pro whaling countries, countries like Japan and Norway, Iceland as well, uh, this was supposed to be a temporary ban. Uh, in, in In their minds, they believed... Uh, at the time that uh, sometime in the future, at the end of the day there could be some consensus reached in terms of uh, how uh, in terms of say sustainable hunting quotas. so uh, but I think over the years these countries like Japan, they have become pretty much um, disappointed with this ban because uh, uh, instead this ban didn't uh, didn't get lifted uh, anytime soon so the band somehow has become a half permanent one um, looking into the future there is a very little chance for the band to be listed japan
1: has been haunting whales for the past 30 years despite the ban how will things be different after its announcement of withdrawal from the iwc
5: Mm, Indeed, so Japan has been doing this for the past 30 years, like you said, but that's under a scientific research program, and this program has been granted as a kind of um, exception by the IWC. Now, critics say this is a cover for what actually is equal to commercial hunting. Uh, Somehow, this criticism, I think, makes a lot of sense because uh, think about it, wells can be taken for scientific studies, and then their meat can later be sold to the market, sold for commercial purposes. So... I think now with Japan pulling out of the uh, IWC, we have plenty of reasons to fear that Japan will no longer use this cover. It can just hunt for whales in a pretty free manner. So, um, and actually, apart from IWC, there are a number of um, other international laws that could p- potentially rein in Japan's behavior. For example, we have the 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 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. But frankly speaking, I think the related... Uh, stipulation and regulation in these laws is pretty vague. It doesn't have a very um, clear standard over what a, a single country can do, what it cannot do. So now with Japan leaving IWC, I think this concern, this, this, this fear that Japan will, will no longer be reined in is very legitimate.
1: So from the story we heard, the commission, the IWC banned commercial willing uh, several decades ago because some species were almost driven to extinction back then. Uh, right now, are whales still endangered species today?
5: Uh, yes and no. Uh, depending on what kind of uh, species we're talking about, I think today, whale stocks, they're carefully ma- uh, uh, monitored, kept an eye on by the IWC. I think uh, the general consensus is that uh, many species, they're still endangered, but some particular species... Are not uh, for example uh, here's one one particular uh, one example I can think of uh, one species called mink m i n k e this this particular species is uh, primarily haunted by the Japanese and it is actually not endangered so in September this year. Japan actually tried to get the IWC to allow some commercial catch and quota for this particular species, but but the proposal was uh, rejected by the organization because even back then, there was already um, expectation that Japan will pull out of this organization anytime soon. So it just doesn't make sense.
1: So you mentioned on the surface, Japan claims scientific research, but they also selling whale meat on the market. Is whale meat
5: popular in Japan? Well, I think um, to say that whale meat is pretty popular in Japan is a kind of an exaggeration. So, according to Asahi, that's one Japanese, that's one Japanese newspaper, uh, whale meat accounts for accounts for only zero point one percent of all meat sold in the country. But indeed, Japan has a culture of whaling. Traditionally, it has been coastal whaling. Then, beginning the then beginning in the 1930s, especially after the World War II, Japan started to sail very far to the to the oceans near the Antarctic to hunt for whales. And 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 actually, the history behind this was very very interesting. After the Second World War, uh, Japan, the whole Japan, the country was in ruins. Its people was starving. With very very limited choice over food, so with the encouragement of General Douglas MacArthur, Japanese, they they conveyed they converted two American Navy tankers into factory ships before set sailing. Um, before setting sail for the. Ah, uh, for the South Pacific Ocean to do the to do the catching. So from the late nineteen forties uh, until the until the mid nineteen sixties, whale meat was basically the single biggest source of meat for Japanese people. And but but today that's by no means the case. Like I said, zero zero point one percent of all meat sold in the country. Mm-hmm. So I would say. Well meat has certain markets among the, the middle-aged people in Japan, because for them, eating well meat represents a kind of um, feeling of thinking about the past, our good old days, nostalgic. But among the young people, it, it just don't, don't have this kind of a market. Mm-hmm.
1: So how does the international community react to this decision by Japan?
5: Um, put it simply, disappointed. It is very rare for Japan actually to withdraw from uh, international organizations. It, it pays a lot of attention to its uh, so-called international image. So now with Japan taking this move, Australia is on the forefront of criticizing, of criticizing Japan because um, a lot of whaling has taken place in waters near Australia. In a joint statement, Australia's foreign minister and environment minister say they are extremely disappointed with Japan's decision. They say Australia remains resolutely opposed to all forms of commercial and so-called scientific willing and environmental activists in Australia also say this is a disregard of international laws. NGOs in Japan, uh, by the way, also uh, say they are very disappointed. Are, a lot of them, for example, Greenpeace Japan, they are urging the Japanese government to reconsider. And yes, this is a governmental affair, by the way. Japan's whaling sector is totally government run, uh, run by the government. So there is actually a, a large bureaucracy with. Uh, research budgets annually and annual plans uh, uh, pensions, uh, promotions so whaling is not only a political is not, uh, uh, so whaling is not only a, a, a social issue a commercial issue in Japan it is um, ultimately I think a political issue in Japan.
1: Thank you very much Ding Hung. That was our reporter Ding Hung. Let's take a short break here coming back for some lighter news stories we've been following. You're listening to today stay with us.
3: Join the most
1: popular Chinese language learning page on Facebook by searching for CRI
3: Learn Chinese. It's a quick yet fun way to achieve your language goals. Start your free lessons now with unlimited videos, photos and text tutorials on expressions and Chinese culture. CRI Learn Chinese Facebook page. A world opens with 你好。
5: with the great efforts made by the staff today to become one of the great uh, platforms for policy debates and information dissemination. And I wish today have an even brighter and a greater tomorrow.
1: Welcome back. Join me for the
0: other news segment is Patrick Flannery. Well, Santa Claus may be recovering from his Christmas Eve travels, but this week he's also the subject suey of fake news. Uh, President Donald Trump is questioning Santa's existence, and you may have heard about this. He did this in a phone call with a child uh, just the other day. Seven-year-old Coleman had called NORAD. NORAD tracked Santa Claus's journey around the United States and was one of the lucky children patched through to the president to have a few minutes with him on the phone. He asked her about her Christmas plans, and the young girl asked if she was still a believer in Santa Claus. She said that she was, and Trump said, at seven years old, it's marginal, right? Uh-huh. The suggestion being that a marginal or very small number of seven-year-olds believe in Santa Claus. So this recalls an incident earlier in the month in New Jersey where a substitute teacher was fired for telling her first-grade students that Santa is not real. Uh, Suey, this is a terrible rumor that seems to get worse by the day. So uh, a teacher is fired for saying Santa is not real, yet the president keeps his job. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And with a false revelation, uh, Donald Trump is now testing even his most dedicated base uh, and and supporters in Congress. It's possible he said this under duress, considering uh, the government shutdown and his inability to travel to Mar-a-Lago for Christmas. Trump has shown time and again that making inflammatory statements uh, rarely has repercussions. So how did the, the child react Coleman is her name, and she lives with her family in South Carolina, and she told the local newspaper that she was shocked, but that she still believes in Santa Claus. She was not familiar with the word marginal, and to be honest, in this context, neither was I. Mm -hmm. I had to be sure uh, I I understand what he was talking about. He was referring to some studies where a, a child is said to begin questioning the existence of Santa by age seven.
1: So, what are other parents saying about this? It's a tough conversation to have about a president, the president making this kind of statement.
0: Right. Well, some have on social media congratulated the president, saying he was telling the truth about Santa Claus. But remember, not everyone's a believer. But it's not for the substitute teacher or for even the president to make a claim just because they've never seen Santa Claus. Right. All right.
1: That's more on to our next story. Yeah,
0: well, police in Canada are pulling double duty these days. They're even accepting tips for their service. Members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are not only fighting crime, these days they're also delivering pizza and burgers and almost any other food you can think of. Between calls for breaking and entering offenses, domestic disturbances, cops are now loading up their patrol cars with takeout orders and even guaranteeing deliveries within 30 minutes. So why are police officers suddenly being tasked with delivering food? They blame budget cuts, and someone had the bright idea that this would be the best way to supplement those costs. Uh, The police have partnered with restaurants like McDonald's, Quiznos, large chains idea being it's your shift you're sitting in your car it's quiet at night you're going to be dispatched not to fight crime necessarily but to deliver someone's dinner and by the way if you hear a siren squealing in Canada it's likely one of these one of these officers no joke they're allowed to speed and use the siren in order to make that delivery on time so how will police officers
1: prioritize their calls if the choice is between a noise complaint and a speedy pizza delivery
0: which option wins it's <laughs> immediately what I thought well how do you what's more important It's up to the officer. Uh, We're told they use what is called an urgency index. That's their name for it. In other words, what's more urgent in the moment? Is it the food delivery or the criminal complaint? What can wait? Uh, They were offering 20% off if they had to end up going to fight crime instead of bringing your order on time. So I, I don't know if I'd want to be in the position of choosing, especially if a tip. Uh, it hangs in the balance. CBC radio did say that this new job description is helping pass the time and morale on the force has gone way up.
1: So you're talking about morale. I was I was wondering what a situation is like in the United States, because uh, like in big cities, uh, New York or uh, cities in California, the yeah. police officers there are known for
0: their, like they're doing a good, good job. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think it, it, it's one way to connect with the public, right? That's face right. to face. If a if an officer knocks on your door, typically it's not good news. Uh, in this case, if he's holding your pizza, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you you can say hello. You, you know your local officer. Right. Uh, maybe it's community service in a and sort of this odd peculiar way maybe it's uh, maybe it's a new thing we should look at
1: right i agree thanks patrick Uh, that's all the time we have for this edition of today a quick recap north and south korea hold a groundbreaking ceremony for inter-korean railway and road projects taiwan's ruling dpp party has been dealt another blow with local elections attack on libya's foreign ministry killed three people Also, Japan has announced withdrawal from the International Whaling Commission to resume commercial whaling. To listen to this episode again or catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching for World News Analysis. The program engineer of this episode is Zhang Yan. You've been listening to Today. I'm Sui. Thanks for listening.